This episode was brought to you by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 139. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. I am here live at Balticon, live on recording anyway, but live with a studio audience with author and sometime podcaster, still podcaster, podcaster (laughs) and voice actor, Doc Coleman. Hi, it's great to be here. Great to have you. So we just finished up your book launch for your new book, which is called The Perils of Prague. Yes. And this is part of a series, is it not? This is the first book of of a series called The Adventures of Crackle and Bang. Right now, I have planned out up to book six, Mm -hmm. and it's deliberately left as an open-ended series. So as the, the mood strikes me and I come up with a new adventure, I can always pop out another one. Nice. So how did this uh, story come to be? The whole thing started many years ago with a Halloween costume. I had dressed up for Halloween as a med professor. I'd gotten a lab coat and a top hat and a pair of goggles for the appropriate steampunk look. And likewise, my wife went to the, the same party and she was dressed up as the lovely assistant with her pair of goggles. And uh, her goggles were not nearly as comfortable. And she quickly handed them off to me and not wanting to carry them around in my hands, I strapped them on top of my top hat with my other goggles. And I looked at that with the two goggles and I said, okay, there's, there's gotta be a character in this. And there's <laughs> gotta be a reason why someone's gonna go around with two sets of goggles on his top hat. And I started thinking about this character and it, it grew out of that. And from that, I pulled in from other influences, including comic books and movies and, and TV shows and built up the, the world of the Eternal Empress. This is, this is a world where Queen Victoria never died, and um, mad science kind of took over real science. When Victoria and, and Edward were promoting science, one of their early discoveries was the weaponization of electricity. So the British troops were armed with lightning rifles. That made them an absolutely devastating force in the world. So because Victoria did not die, in the early 1900s, World War I never happened because when things started acting up, she said, no, no, stop that. Stop treating your people like that. Put your house in order. And if you won't do it, I will. And when they didn't do it, she started rolling troops in with lightning rifles and the enemy troops went down. <laughs> so basically you're taking the American hegemony that happened after World War II and you're moving it up Mm -hmm. to the beginning of the 20th century Mm -hmm. and placing that in the hands of the British Empire. Placing it in the hands of the British Empire and once the British spread out and got control, Victoria decided that a lot of technology out there was just too dangerous. So she created the Ministry of Technological Safety to examine every new scientific discovery and decided if it was safe enough to be released, which resulted in a heck of a lot of scientific repression. 
And um, yet, this is a world of mad science, which would imply a sort of scientific liberality that we didn't um, see in our world. So what we got was a lot of scientists who were pissed off that they couldn't publish anything. And instead of science being above ground and collaborative, it went underground. And... And that's when shit gets weird. And that's when shit gets weird. Because it removed ethics from science. Because, you know, a lot of these scientists got so far in their careers, and then in order to continue, they had to become criminals. And so what you're saying is that when science is outlawed, only outlaws, outlaws will, will have, have science. science. Yes! <laughs> so we've got mad science, we've got secret societies. There's a, a flow of mysticism through it all. One of the things I loved about the whole Victorian era and the steampunk genre in general is anything is possible. And in this world, I got to play with that and I got to draw it out a little bit farther. The first book is definitely, most of it is a lot more technical, but there is definitely a, a mystical element to it. And we'll see more of that in some of the later books. Talking about the early 19th century or mm -hmm. early 20th century obsession with spiritism and mm -hmm. occultism and that sort of thing. Yep. What, um, could somebody please close that door or, or make them be quiet or both? Shoot them with a lightning rifle. <laughs> now we got to keep that in. <laughs> so what kind of research is involved? This is the thing that always has bedeviled me about steampunk because it is fantasy, but it is so incredibly grounded in a very specific, actual place and time. Mm -hmm. And every time I've tried to write steampunk, I just end up getting mired in tons and tons of Victorian minutiae on Wikipedia. And I just, I never know where to stop. See, that's the real fun of writing in a world in a parallel world is yes you take your model from the real world but you also get to decide where things differ but that's my question where do you do how much research do you do about the real world and what resources do you use um because it can't it's not just a matter of, of popping gears onto things and having gratuitous steam pipes no it's it's really not I, what i did is i went and i wrote through the first draft and for the first draft, I just did things the way I thought they would go. And when I went through to do the next revision for the second draft, as I started hitting things that hooked on historical and technological things, I would hit Google and I would do research to try to dig up what actually happened in the timeline and then make a decision. Did I want to keep that in the timeline? Did I want to change it? Did I want to make it closer or, or just you know go wide for it? I was very happy with the fact that just about everything that I researched on the technological side pretty much lined up with what I thought it was. So far, there's very little fudging in the science. The biggest fudge is to the timelines because when you start off and you say, okay, this is, this is Victorian era that usually puts you in the late 1800s, well, she's the eternal empress. So not only are we into the beginning of the 20th century, you're all the way over into the beginning of the 21st century. So Victoria has been suppressing science and social development for a hundred years. And that leads to a lot of the tensions in the world. And on one side, it's very peaceful. If you obey the law, you got no problems. But if you want to do something that she's decided you shouldn't do, it goes underground and there is a very active and seedy underground. <laughs> it makes me think about like how long it took after the creation of the American 
mm-hmm. hegemonic system for the lines and the, the seams to start splitting. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in a, a place now where the social order we built is coming unraveled despite our best efforts and despite strong socioeconomic and political reasons, incentives for it to stay in place. Mm-hmm. Because we've had all of these cultural movements and things. We see it in in things like the Arab Spring. We see it in the Brexit vote. We see it in the election of Donald Trump. There are these insurgent populist movements that have been rebelling against the social order. And you have to figure something like that would have happened if Britain were in charge just Mm -hmm. as surely as when America was in charge. So how do you game that out to create the world that you want? Um... Uh, one of the inevitable problems when you've got strong forces trying to tear apart a society is you have to provide stronger forces to hold it together. You either have to have an active campaign to change the hearts and minds of people and make them pull together, which is what we need now, or you have to apply a lot of force. And the British were always good at that. And the British were always good at applying force. So this is one of the fun areas of this kind of steampunk world is that on the top, it's all clean and polite and polished. But the reason it is, is because there's a certain level of tyranny there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is a very classist structure. And if you're not in the top class, things are not going to be good for you very quickly. And... A part of this adventure in the the whole series is starting with characters who are towards the top of this. And as they go on and they start investigating things, they start digging down deeper and deeper into the dirt Mm -hmm. and finding out just how how tenuous the world is held together in some places. I really like Uh, what you're doing here because it really is bringing back the punk of steampunk. Mm -hmm. Steampunk was a growth out of cyberpunk, which was very much about highly totalitarian dystopian stratified society and it was a story of the people on the bottom in the grime in the muck Mm -hmm. fighting against that system steampunk started there but it quickly became this very romantic aesthetic because we're all we're drawn in by the gleam and the the brass and the chrome and the you know the, and the I have airships. To admit, I, I love the romantic aesthetic. Oh, it's gorgeous. And, and, but and romanticism is terrible. <laughs> once in an interview, I think it was actually in a Balticon interview. I was on a panel with T and Pip, and we were talking about that's T Morris and Philippa Ballantyne, yep. Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences dot com. Yep, ding. <laughs> and T had asked me. Do I like my steampunk light or dark? And my answer is I like it light with dark stripes. Mm -hmm. I I like to have both of those elements in there together. I want my evil to be really evil. I want my good to be really good. And I also want to have those moments when you're not sure if the good guy is a good guy or a bad guy. (laughs) And I've, I've basically built a pressure cooker of a world. And the trick is to keep it just on the edge of exploding and explore it while these characters weave through it. And one of the fun things about this is the fact that Professor Crackle is exiled. So this is going to be steampunk that if it ever touches down in England, it means I'm going to end the series. So we're going to hit all kinds of other places in the world. We're going to see how other cultures have reacted to Pax Britannia. And even the the cultures that aren't under British rule are very nervous about provoking the uh, British ire 
You don't uh, want to wake the dragon. Yeah, so you, you don't want to wake the dragon when you already know the dragon's got stronger tools than you do. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really excited about getting the first book out. And I've got other stories set in other worlds that I want to do, but I'm also looking forward to kicking out some of the stories that I've already got planned for this world. So how are you approaching the, the marketing and distribution and just getting the word out around this book? Are you going to be releasing podcast novel? Or are you going to be releasing it on Audible? What's your game plan? I would absolutely love to be able to do a full cast podcast novel, but I don't have the time <laughs> right now uh, to do all the editing of bringing things together. Right now, my, my big plan for promoting this book is to write the next one. Good answer. Uh, uh, Nathan Lowell and J. Daniel Sawyer are my marketing gurus in this. The best resolve to marketing a book is to write the next book and put it out there as well. My mantra is nothing sells like a back catalog. Mm -hmm. So the more stuff I have out there, the better all of it will sell. And I am I am doing some things. I'm I'm trying to make connections to bookstores that that cater to independent publishers. Doing interviews like this, trying to get reviews placed in different places, just to help get the word out. But it becomes a balance between how much you do with marketing versus how much time do you put into building the next thing, and how much time do you put into making sure your day job is still in good order. Right. Um, and your social life. And your social life. So it's a juggling act. And right now I really feel that it's figuring out what the next project is going to be. I still i am going to look forward to convention events like, like this one where I can get people together to help help bring the characters alive and give people a taste of what's there. And hopefully that will get the word out enough that it catches on its own. Are you writing anything else right now? Right now, I am torn between three different projects that are on my desk. One is the next book in the series, which is The Kindred of Kali, which is uh, when our characters go and travel to India. And the intent is for each adventure to be a different type adventure. So the next one is going to be much more political intrigue. And there's still going to be some mystery and some hunting down the bad guy, but it's going to be a lot more twisty in terms of who's doing what and, and what's going on and a lot more characters involved. Well, that's particularly fun because it means you get to play around with different genres within your mm -hmm. your one setting. Yeah, uh, that's that's part of the reason why, why I love this world. Another book that is on my plate is The Brightlands, which is the first book of the Enchanted Lands trilogy, which is a YA book about a young girl who literally trips and falls into fairy. Ooh. It's a modern fantasy that involves a girl is running away from bullies and finds herself in Underhill. And the first book is about how she finds her own magic and finds her way back home. And that was a, a NaNoWriMo project in 2012, which I didn't, didn't quite get as far. But one thing I did then is I was posting daily updates of what happened in the story. And I know I've got one very interested party in seeing that story get out. And then I've got a sci-fi story that's also planned dealing with what happens with people who are on colony ships to other stars moving under the speed of light. And that's kind of a big undertaking, and it's going to require a lot, of, a lot of math and a lot of calculation in order to get the timelines right, because most of it is told from the viewpoint of the folks back on Earth. Mm. Part of the idea is you send out the colony ship, and you also send out terraforming missiles. So the terraforming missiles get there first, 
hit the planet, release nanobots, and make the place habitable and actually build cities for people so that when the, the colony ship finally arrives, there's a place to live, there's edible food and stuff like that. Talk about laying the track in front of your train. Exactly. And the problem with this one is, well, everything's still in flight. They, they get telemetry back from the, the colony that it's set up. It's just waiting for people to arrive. And then suddenly one day, it goes silent. And then they got to figure out, okay, we can't contact the colonists because they're still at relativistic speeds. What the hell do we do? And that ends up with Earth developing faster than light travel, getting out there and finding out that the planet they were going to colonize is gone. And now they got to figure out, okay, what happened to the colony? What happened to the planet? What about those other planets that we sent colony ships out to? Mm. And it's a very big story, and it's kind of been on the back burner for a while. But I've got another author who wants to work with me on it, and she's very insistent that we get started on it. It's so. interesting. So it has, you have Ansible technology in this, but it doesn't work while the ship is at relativistic speeds, or...? The problem with transmissions at relativistic speeds is signal attenuation, that it's either too fast or too slow. Mm-hmm. If you're traveling at relativistic speeds and you're trying to accept a signal, one, you don't know that it's coming, and two, when it gets there, you can miss it. And if you're sending a reply back, the replies are, are, are drawn out so far. Even moving at light speed, the signals are, are drawn out so far, the signals can get weak, and it could t- literally take years to receive a simple signal and and honestly that's based on my layman's knowledge of it i really have to sit down and do the math and figure out how bad it is i wonder also how special relativity fits into this because as i understand it regardless of how fast you're going light is always the the speed of light relative to you Mm -hmm. but yeah there are lots of weird things going in there and it's like that's going to take a lot of physics research Mm -hmm. you're going to need a uh, an alpha reader who knows physics i'm going to need a set of alpha readers who know physics astrophysics relativistic physics (laughs) but i love the idea i don't want to say too much about it and and tip the hand because Mm -hmm. i'm looking forward to writing it it's just getting everything lined up So so you've got you've got on deck Mm-hmm. Steampunk world, a portal fantasy, mm-hmm. in a science fiction hard mm-hmm. sci-fi world, yep. from what it sounds like. And I've got another story which is kind of on the back burner, which is a superhero world. And the big problem I have with that is that the point of view character is a clinical psychologist. And I need to learn a lot more about trauma and about clinical psychology before I can write that. Okay, um, so <laughs> four... Four, four, four com- stories on it. Four stories, mm-hmm. four completely different genres, four markets. Mm-hmm. What the I hell, dude? Myself? Are you a masochist? <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, part of it is a lot of people like to pick one genre and stick with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what's going to hit until it hits. Mm-hmm. So I want to try different things. And I love doing the steampunk. And, and it's been nice to hear that people have enjoyed reading it, but that doesn't mean it's going to sell in a bigger market. And it could be that I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do this, this little young adult fantasy trilogy, and that could hit. Mm-hmm. And it could be it's like, okay, I can really make some good progress with that. Or maybe the sci-fi could hit, or turn the science down a little bit and do space opera. I'm just trying different things to find out how many voices I've got in me and get the best chance of getting something that finds its own market. It's just a lot of 
lot of time to figure out how to squeeze it all in. What do you think are the themes or the ideas that you're wrestling with in your writing that tie these different genres together? Because there's something that in you that, that there's something in you that is the Doc Coleman voice or the the thing that you're wrestling with or the 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 themes or ideas that you want to grapple with that you're coming at from different angles and you may be doing it subconsciously. Mm-hmm. So um, I know that in the Adventures of Crackling Bang. There's definitely themes of finding family, of dealing with the misfits. There's themes of finding or making your own place in the world. There's also different approaches to immortality. And I guess in myself, there's a a certain dislike to mortality. It's like, I want to go out when I'm ready to go out. (laughs) I want to get out as much experience as I can first and then later I'll die. I don't like the idea of being limited. So I admit that in that world, I'm finding characters who have managed to find different ways around that. So you're saying that you don't want to live forever. You just want to live while you're alive. I want to live until I'm done. I want to live until I feel like I've seen all the good stuff. In the, the fantasy trilogy, a lot of the themes are finding your own power and not just finding your own power but understanding the different ways that power can be applied casey the main character in in that story basically she has a particular power that lets her see the truth of things lets her see the ultimate form of reality and a lot of people say that magic has its price i'm going with the aspect that as you use magic to change the world the magic changes you So magic and madness go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. But Casey's particular power lets her use the magic and also know what the true state is so she can also reset things. So she can use a lot more power and minimize the impact on herself. But she's also been growing up in our world. Mm. So she doesn't believe in magic. So it's a big arc for her finding out that this exists, that she actually has ability, and that her ability gives her a special gift that a lot of other people don't have, and trying to figure out what she can do with it. Um, It's like, I like these concepts. I just wish I had more time. I wish I could could quit the day job and just write them full time. But Let's go ahead uh, and open it up to the audience for some questions. So... I am a kindred spirit, as you well know, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of playing in multiple genres. Mm -hmm. How are you keeping everything straight in your head? Are you developing, like, story Bibles for the different worlds? And sort of, what's your process for deciding which one to tackle next? Deciding which one to tackle next is what I'm, I'm really struggling with. Because I was going back and forth between different projects. Uh, which is part of the reason why Perils took six years, because while, <laughs> while I was letting Perils sit and, and, and ripen, I was working on something else, and that took me away from it for a longer amount of time. So now that I've finally got Perils published, I'm at the point where I need to make that decision as to what I'm doing next. But as as far as how am I keeping it all straight, right now it's it's pretty much all up in my head. I haven't really documented a lot of these things. Generally, I've got a, a pretty good memory, and it's it's easy to keep these things straight. But 
there is a bit of a worry that I could lose some of the cool details that I come up with that I haven't gotten at it very far. So what I'm actually starting to do is starting to go ahead and create Scrivener projects as some of the, the better ideas are coming to me and just jot down note cards in Scrivener uh, with these things. And then it'll be out there when I actually decide that that's the project I'm going to work on. So with Perils of Prague and the future books, which I really enjoyed Perils of Prague, by the way, I had the fortune of being one of the beta readers. You've got the next one planned to some degree. How far out do you have an idea of like what other countries you want to tackle? And The next book is The Kindred of Kali, which is an intrigue story in India. After that is The Rage of Ragnarok, which involves Viking sky pirates of Southeast Asia. So basically, the pickings were, were not good over Norway and Northeastern Europe. So these pirates just kept migrating until they found a place where they could actually get away with what they were doing. And uh, that's going to be an interesting one because one of the first things that's going to happen in that one is the Argos is going to get attacked. They're going to fend off the attack, but they're going to be damaged. And they're going to have to go make field repairs and then find a place for more permanent repairs. The next story after that is A Cuckoo in the Nest, which is set in Australia. And if you're a flagship reader, you've already seen a snippet out of that because the short story I did for flagship, A Walk in the Park, that takes place in Australia at that point in time. And I'm going to take that text and integrate it into the book. And uh, A Cuckoo in the Nest is going to involve more magic and mysticism in that world. Let's see, the next story after that, I don't believe I have a working title for, but that's going to involve our intrepid trio coming to America, and they're going to be dealing with mysterious destruction in San Francisco, where vast swaths of the, the landscape are taken out, and it's, it's going to turn out to be a bank robbery story. But everyone thinks they're, they're having horrible earthquakes and they actually get called in by a seismologist. But when you start looking at the pattern of destruction, it's like the worst destruction is always at a bank. And the sixth story is going to be set in Pennsylvania. And it's going to involve a scientist trying to create a remote worker for the mines. So someone can project their mind into a mechanical device and send it down to the mines to, to collect coal and other things. And while he's testing this device, the scientist is killed, except his mind is still in the robot body. And that's going to be a bit of an adventure and a study of human condition. And after that, I don't know where I'm going after that. <laughs> All right. Well, Doc, how can people support you on this writing adventure of yours? The biggest thing that you can do to support me right now is to buy the book. And that is The Perils of Prague, which is available on Amazon and CreateSpace. Mm -hmm. Obviously, CreateSpace is a paperback. It's available on Amazon as paperback and Kindle form. You can also go to my website, swimmingcatstudios.com, and donate to my tip jar. The more I sell, the, the more people donate to me because they like what I can do, the more I can carve out time to put into my writing. I have a mailing list there. Sign up for the mailing list. I've been rocky about keeping things out, but I'm going to try to do that better. And you and the, me both, brother. The more people on the mailing list, the more I am encouraged to send stuff out to you and give you sneak peeks. 
And if the, the mailing list gets big enough and I say, hey, I've actually got a following, I'll probably do a Patreon. And if you bought the book and you've read the book and you like the book, tell people about it. Put reviews on Amazon, put reviews on Goodreads, tell your friends, share the love. As uh, Dan Sawyer likes to say, pelt your enemies with CD copies yes. of the book. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the Raven and the Writing Desk, Doc. It's good to have you. All right. Thank you for having me. <laughs> if you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.